Det var det ju But do the servants of God get to choose what commands of God they will or will not obey? May we use our intellect or our sense of morality to discern whether what God says to do is right or wrong. To say it another way, is conscience a safe guide for conduct or does God know best? And I'll tell you, these are not easy questions to answer. They are. And God does not make it easy on Abraham to comply. Notice God's description of the sacrifice. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, that's the son of promise, not Ishmael, whom you love, to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Does any of this sound familiar? I mean, when God called Abram to leave his family in Ur of the Chaldees, he said, Leave your country, I'm reading scripture, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I'll show you. Hmm. God just saying, start out, and I will tell you when and where to stop. Wow. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11 verse 8. Now here we are toward the end of Abraham's journey. He's over a hundred years old. Verse 1 says sometime later. He and Sarah have waited 25 years for the birth of Isaac. The promised son. And now that Isaac is a boy, now that he's old enough to carry firewood, verse 6, to accompany his father up a mountainside, the command of God comes to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Can this really uh, be happening? Would God give such a horrendous directive? Maybe, hey, Abraham, maybe you have misunderstood the word of God. Maybe this is all just a bad dream. Well, no, not a dream. Maybe, maybe it's just a nightmare. Where is the righteousness of God in all of this? Would not God in later history condemn the Israelites for practicing this very thing? Let me read it for you. Leviticus 18 verse 21 is the rule. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. For you must not profane the name of your God. I'm the Lord. Leviticus 18.21 But, but, Jeremiah's history includes this gruesome account. They built high places for Baal in the valley of the Ben-Hidden to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. Jeremiah 32, verse 35. But they did it. So yes, to sacrifice one's child is a detestable thing, as God commands Abraham here to do. But this is a test. It's a test. And the outcome cannot be revealed before working through the problem, else the test loses its impact. 
You can't tell him this is just a test. He's got to go through it. It's like people who read the end of a history book or a novel because the suspense is just too powerful for them to work their way through all those chapters. They just have to know how the story ends to make a judgment on whether or not the read will be something profitable or joyful. So they cheat. They read the ending and then they go back and decide whether they're going to read the novel or not. But you know, life doesn't unfold like that. It doesn't. Instead, life comes a step at a time, a day at a time. There's no crystal ball to reveal the future details of your personal lives. We have to work through the daily struggles, the reversals to discover the metal of our faith. Well, that said, what was Abraham's response? Well, his response was a quick compliance to what must have seemed an outrageous command. Look at verse 3 and follow. Early the next morning. See, there's no hesitation. There's no delay. He's going, <laughs> he's moving. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. So in the night, God had revealed to him where to go. And we read on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place. He saw it in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. Knife? Yeah, to slay Isaac. Fire? Yes, to comply with the burnt offering. This guy means business. So as Isaac and his father traveled on alone, Isaac's curiosity was piqued. Whoa, he knew he had fire. We knew he knew he had wood. But where was where was the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham's response is given in verse 8. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Now you see what's happened here. Isaac has put two plus two together. Abraham had told the servants, verse 5, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Maybe he pointed, I don't know. We will worship and then we will come back to you. By the way, giving an offering is part of worship to God. It's not that God needs anything you or I have of our material wealth, but you and I need to have checks and balances on such things as greed and covetousness and envy and hoarding and selfishness and taking God for granted, being users of God and so forth, being unthankful. Yeah, we need checks on all of those things. Now, a lot of things are tied to our pocketbooks. The word of God is this, I do not rebuke you. This is God speaking in Psalm 50. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need for a bull from your stall or a goat from your pen. For every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains. The creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And the applied answer is no. And so God makes his point. 
sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Psalm 50 verse 8 and following. Paul put it this way. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly. Not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So giving to God and his work is just what Isaac surmised. Father, uh, uh, we have wood, we have fire, but we're missing the essential ingredient. We have nothing for the burnt offering. His point, fire, yes, wood, yes, but... Where's the offering in that? <laughs> I mean, are we going to sacrifice a fire and wood? There's no value in that. No sacrifice in that. You remember that Jesus commended the widow woman for her sacrifice as he watched her deposit two small copper coins into the temple treasury. And he made this comparison. He said to his disciples, all these people, he's talking about the crowds, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Luke 21, verse 4. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. David, in his giving, addressed the value factor as well in his offering to God. When Aaron, I hard can pronounce this guy's name, Aaron knew, I think, the Jebusite offered to give King David the threshing floor, which the prophet Gad had commissioned him to use. Aaronah said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. 2 Samuel 24, verse 22. Okay, what was David's response? But the king replied to Aronal, No, no, no. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Whoa. So David bought the threshing floor, and the oxen. And he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. 2 Samuel 24, 24. It can't be an offering if you don't own it. And you're giving it willingly. So firstly, there was a quick compliance on Abraham's part to God's command. Secondly, God stayed his command to sacrifice Isaac. When Abraham and Isaac reached the very place that God had pointed out to Abraham for him to worship, verse 9, Abraham built an altar using field stones, layered it with wood, bound Isaac, put him on the wood, verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham! I can just see him. Startled, stopped, 
by the voice from heaven. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Brethren, there's hardly a more dramatic account in biblical history. Isaac, perhaps fearful at what was happening to him, but obedient nonetheless. Abraham following through with what God had told him to do and with full resolve to carry out the slaying of Isaac to be followed by lighting the fire. What? What father does something like this to his own flesh and blood? I mean, this is the kind of stuff horror movies are made of. But this is not Hollywood. This is not fiction. This was real. What was Abraham thinking What was going through his mind? Well, brethren, fortunately we do not have to speculate. Why so? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us under under inspiration of the Holy Spirit what Abraham was thinking. Let me read it for you. By faith Abraham... When God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to do it through Isaac. And Abraham knew that. Let me read on. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Whoa, did I read that right? Here's what was going on in Abraham's mind I'm going to kill this boy. Because God commanded me to do it. But after I do it, God's just going to have to raise him from the dead. And the writer Hebrews says, And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19. Now, brethren, that's faith. That's faith. And this indicates to me that when Abraham raised the knife to sacrifice Isaac, there was no hesitation. There was no holding midair, no thinking, well, God, you know, (laughs) I have the knife. I'm ready to plunge it into Isaac's heart. Here's where you are to expose yourself and support me by stopping me. Oh no, there was none of this. He meant business. He meant business. And God had to literally cancel the order in a split second. Abraham, Abraham! Probably startled Abraham. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Verse 12. Talk about split split second intervention. He went on to say, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Verse 12. And the next verse says, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram, that is a male sheep, caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place 
Jehovah Jireh, the Lord sees to it. Which NIV understands to mean the Lord will provide. Because that's used in verse 8. The Lord will provide the necessary animal for the offering. The remaining context of this account tells us that God called from heaven a second time and reaffirmed his covenant to Abraham on oath. I swear by myself that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. In verse 18, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Well, that's us, brethren. We're the offspring that have been blessed. Verse 19 says that Abraham returned to his servants and they set out together for Beersheba. Beersheba means the well of the oath. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. What a gold mine here of spiritual lessons. Here's some of the nuggets. The faith in God, essential to answer his initial call when he called you to in salvation, is the same faith required to live the remainder of your life. When God first appeared to Abraham in the Chaldees, he said to him, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land that I will show you. Chapter 12, verse 1. It was a test of his faith. I mean, think about it. Who was this God that now spoke? And why should Abraham obey him? Remember, he's an idolater. He doesn't know anything about statues of stone or bronzes of gold or silver, talking, communicating. In other words, being alive. There is no such thing. But here's a God that spoke. Wow. Now more than 25 years later, God comes to Abraham again, and he says, take your son, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there on one of the mountains that I'll tell you about. So here's another test of faith. And it doesn't seem to be any more concrete than in the beginning years. One of the mountains that I'll tell you about? Really? Well, which one? Not your concern. For now, just, Abraham, just head out and all will become clear when you put your feet to the path. So we think after years of following the Lord that faith is replaced by knowledge. Do we ever reach the point in life where knowledge replaces faith? Well, knowledge, if truly from God, bolsters faith. I will admit that. But knowledge can also militate against obedience by fostering pride. Paul says, We know that all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. So God's tests in life are not to see how much you know but rather how willing you are to trust him and to obey him. Secondly, we learn what is right 
what's moral to do is what God says it is in his written word. Written word. We have many issues in life where men have made their own rules of morality. Abortion. Homosexuality. Justifiable lying or deceiving. Justifiable theft, because I'm hungry. These would be quick to take God to task here in our text because he commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. In other texts, we actually have Israel being commanded to wipe out whole people groups because of their gross idolatry and rebellion against him. We cringe at the bloodshed, but let us keep in mind that God, while sometimes using direct intervention for judgment, as in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember he sent fire from heaven, he will more often than not employ wicked men to judge. He even called the Assyrians. He called the Egyptians to do what? To punish Israel for rebelling against his commandments and opting for pagan idolatry instead. Even with the most horrendous of crimes, the crucifixion of the innocent and sinless Son of God, Peter tells the assembled crowd, At Pentecost, this man, referring to Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 2, verse 23. In other words, God removes his restraints and the wicked do what they do, what they are in heart. Now, God doesn't make men evil, but he uses their avarice, their jealousy, their greed, and so forth in such a way that the end product accomplishes his set purpose. That's real power. That's real control that only God can accomplish. Just takes his restraints off, and men do what they were going to do, and what they're going to do is evil. He doesn't make them evil. They just are evil. It was the restraints that kept them from doing what they are by nature. So it is God who is the standard for morality. Anything different, anything less is immoral. Abraham knew this about God, so his faith taught him to believe. If God wants me to slay Isaac, all right, then God will just have to raise him from the dead in order to keep his word to me that through Isaac my descendants will come. You see, he's using his brain. Is faith reasonable? Yeah, it's reasonable. Wait a minute, he's putting the pieces together. Isaac's the promised child. My descendants are to come through him. I have been told by God that God is going to make of me a great nation. Many nations are going to come from me and Sarah. So if I kill Isaac, how's that going to be? Well, I know how it's going to be. God's just going to have to raise him from the dead. Wow. He reasoned that out. He connected the dots, as George would say. And in doing so, he began to see the big picture. Do we trust God like that? 
Thirdly, faith, while gifted to every believer, must grow, continue to grow, and not be stagnant. Now, Abraham did not start out believing that God would have to raise Isaac to life. He didn't start out that way. If Abraham sacrificed him on the altar at Mount Moriah, he didn't start out that way. No, Abraham had to begin with baby steps of faith. He was an idolater, you remember, like his father Terah. What did he know of a living God who could speak from heaven, give orders to obey? Consequences if you didn't obey. But, by faith, we read in Hebrews 11, 8, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And so began Abraham and Sarah's spiritual journey within the kingdom of God. Now, he messed up big time by taking his nephew Lot on the journey when God told him to leave your family behind when you set out from Ur. He failed in faith twice more, compromising his integrity by lying once to Pharaoh, another time to Abimelech, saying that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. Boy, you remember all the trouble that caused. And why? Because he was afraid of what might happen to himself. That's why. Why was he afraid? Well, he was not fully persuaded of God's oversight and protection. His fear was great. His faith was weak. But he didn't stay a weakling in his faith. That's the point. He didn't stay there. Remember, he used his servants to rescue Lot and the citizens of Sodom. He refused a compensation, saying to the king, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. I have taken an oath that I will not accept anything belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Genesis fourteen twenty two. And when God promised him a land for his own, when he reached Canaan, we learn by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11. Verse 9 and 10. And when Abraham was too old to father a son, and Sarah was well past the age of childbearing, the Apostle Paul reminds us, I may read it for you, against all hope, against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. And so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Yeah, he was 99 years old. That's about 100, almost 100 years old. He faced the fact that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet... He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But he was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Romans 4, 18 and verses and following. Now what is that? that this is faith growing. It's faith growing. This is progress from baby steps to full adult trust in God. Do you know that we're called to the same 
And when we drag our feet through indolence, God rebukes us, saying, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone else to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Oh, oh my. You mean there's been some, some loss of what you knew? Yeah. He goes on. You need milk and not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. What? You're digressing. You're going back. Well, what's the matter with you? But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 5, verse 12 and following. So Abraham teaches us that stagnant faith is not faith. It is not faith. We must mature in our faith. We must grow in our faith. And then finally, the impossible hard things of life can be accomplished when partnered with God the Father. Abraham and Isaac were on a hard course. It consisted of a three-day journey from Beersheba to Mount Moriah in the hill country of Judah. Fire, knife, wood, Isaac as the unwitting sacrificial lamb. We read in verse 6 that Abraham placed the wood on Isaac while he carried the knife and the fire. And we read the two of them went on together. In verse 7, Isaac questioned Abraham, uh, Dad, where's the lamb? You know, it's essential <laughs> for the offering. Where's the lamb? And Abraham explained, God himself will provide the lamb. And we are told again, the two of them went on together. The point being, what? One day on Mount Moriah, easily recognized as the place determined by God, verse 4, likely because of its unique rock formation known as the skull. God the Father, Son, Jesus, whom the baptizer labeled the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29, ascended this same mountain, Mount Moriah, carrying his own wooden cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, John 19, verse 17. Only this time, there was no stay of execution. But rather, as Paul explains, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Romans 8, verse 32. He goes on, again you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Romans 5 verses 6 through 9. Point being, God the Father and God the Son walk this path together. We read indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, 
whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had determined beforehand should happen. Acts 4, 27, 28. Let us recall Jesus' prayer. He went away a second time and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, if it's not possible, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Matthew 26, 42. To his disciples, Jesus explains, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. John 10, 17 and 18. Turning from a life of sin and self-interest to a trusting faith in Jesus. Yeah, that may seem the hardest thing ever for you to do. Maybe even impossible. Impossible. But Jesus teaches us what is impossible with men is possible with God. Luke 18 verse 27. So if you're without God today, launch out in faith. Take the Father's hand, believing that salvation can be yours through Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. Deep conviction? What's that? That's God reaching out to you in love. That's God saying to you, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient. Isaiah 1, verse 18 and 19. None of this history is incidental or inconsequential to our faith in Christ. These Old Testament stories are laying the historical background of the present happenings in the New Testament. Abraham, the man of faith. And so Paul says in Galatians, if you believe, then you are children of Abraham, just like him. That's what we are. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that if there's any here today that they're still sitting on the fence, they don't know about all this religious stuff, they're still learning, they're still questioning, they're wondering. They've heard this voice, and then they went somewhere else and they heard another voice, and then their friends told them something, and then their neighbors had something to say. And then they were ridiculed at school or in the neighborhood or at work. And that got them questioning some more. And they didn't know what to do. And so they didn't do anything. And on and on it goes. And delay after delay after delay. Satan has won. He keeps them on the treadmill, never making a commitment. But, oh, Lord, that day is coming to an end. It is. In fact, God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. I'm not always going to bring conviction. I'm not always going to deal with you in a personal way so that you come to Christ. There's a day coming when there's going to be an end to all that. Lord, I pray that any here outside of Jesus might get busy with the reality that these eternal things are more important than the temporal things of this world. Because it's appointed unto men, the scripture says, to die, which we're all going to do, but afterwards comes the judgment. Ooh, 
So there's something beyond dying. Yeah. Comes the judgment. Who's the judge? Scripture says it's Jesus Christ himself. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, writes the Apostle Paul. What are you going to tell Christ when he questions what they have done with him? Lord, I pray, may we get serious about living our faith. And if we don't have any faith in you, grant us that. Grant us the repentance unto life. We'll praise you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. Trinity Hymnal, 708. 708 in Trinity. When you find number 708 in the red, will you please stand with me? Our Lord, we're thankful for the blood of Christ. Oh, we are in deep trouble in our country. The world is in trouble. We're trying to give forth the We're trying to say to our neighbors and friends and relatives, this life is not the only life there is. You need to think about eternity. You need to think about life beyond the grave. And that makes them laugh because some, maybe most, believe that life just ends at the grave and and they go into nothingness. They won't know anything. They won't experience anything. They'll just not be around.
scripture says it's appointed us to die once and after that the judgment grave and there's whole books in the bible written about the future and what's coming but we're not ready to see all of that unless we have faith in the present reality of Jesus Christ ruling and governing our world from his throne on high. Help us to see it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're so patient with us. Why don't you just strike us all dead and let it go at that? And you're dealing with us in our ignorance, even with our stubbornness and our pride and our arrogance, not willing that any of us should perish. I pray that that's the case with all that are here today. May you show yourself Savior that you are. And we thank you, dear Jesus, for not giving up on us. Amen.